Okay, welcome in. My name is Andy Lack, Inside Golf Podcast, uh, Players Championship, betting and DFS preview. We have a ton to get to today. A couple quick things that I want to talk about with the API. Uh, pretty big announcement I've got to make as well. And then obviously this is a massive tournament uh, and I have a ton of great stuff on the players. So bear with me. I'm going to do my best to keep this under an hour. My voice gets really tired at the end anyway. Uh, Probably going to have to take a sip or two of my giant water jug once or twice, but we're going to jam it all in. If this is your first time, welcome. We're going to talk about sub-air systems and all that fun stuff, but basically I'll give you everything that I think you would want to know about this tournament, the players. Uh, before you make any DFS lineups or wagers on it. But before we get to the players, I want to talk about the API really quickly. So I talked about this on my Tuesday show with Tom Jacobs. This Billy Horschel thing, um, where he's like 18 to 1 and 28% uh, last week at the Honda. And he has the third best ball striking week of his entire career last week. Um, I was having such a difficult time understanding this. Maybe it's because Billy's unlikable, but then again, everyone played him last week. Um, and he didn't even let you down that hard if you played him in, in DFS last week. Um, but he hit the shit out of the ball at Honda, uh, like really elite stuff. And prior to that, he was hitting it well too. So he had clearly found something with the ball striking and he just couldn't buy a putt at the Honda. Um, and now he's 55 to one and he's like 8% in some contests. I guess what I'm saying is I don't understand why you would hop off in that scenario if you liked him last week. And I get it. Hindsight is 2020, but I also said the exact same thing before the tournament started too. Um, like we really don't think that Billy is, going to figure out the putter at some point on Bermuda when he's, he's hitting the ball this well. Um, and what do you know? The ball striking continued. Um, he's hit the ball great this week and the putter has come around too. Now he probably won't win because that's not how this ever works. But I got to say, if it plays just as hard uh, tomorrow, I'm recording this on Saturday night. If this plays just as hard tomorrow as it did today. Like, man, Rory folded like a cheap napkin today in these conditions. And I'm a Rory fan. I really like Rory. Um, But there is a reason why he's never won a tournament under 10 under par in his entire career. He just looked so much less comfortable. um, And he kind of just seemed to lose his mojo um, when his ball wasn't doing what he thought it would do, which is stop on the greens, uh, which is perfectly understandable. I would be frustrated too. Those greens were rock hard and PG tour. They don't practice on greens like that. They, it's very rare that you see greens that firm unless it's a U.S. open. Uh, but like him and Hovland, you know, I, I don't know if people think because Hovland won the hero and the Mayakoba that, the short game is kind of back on the right track and getting solved. Um, His short game looked horrendous on Saturday. 
I mean, horrendous. He chunked two bunker shots. He kind of got away with them, um, but his lag putting was very poor. His short putting looked really shaky. And man, I know everyone is probably running to the window to bet this kid at majors, but that short game is not fixed at all. Now, there are certain courses where short game doesn't matter at all, and Hovland is probably going to continue to win those events but like a u.s open at brookline with those microscopic greens those rock hard greens and thick rough it's not happening it's not happening unless he really improves that area of his game which is certainly possible i'll give you an example you know neiman is actually an example of someone who's really improved his short game in a pretty short period of time. And like not not just eye test and oh he won at Riviera, short game matters at Riviera. No, like statistically too, like Neiman's really kind of figured out um around the greens, at least lately. So I'm not saying Hovland can't do it. It's it's definitely possible for Hovland too. But when you get in this situation, and I know this is a bit of a hot take. Like I, Victor Hovland is objectively better at golf than Billy Horschel. He Victor can do things with a golf club that Billy simply cannot do. But when you get in this situation where even Hovland's iron shots aren't able to stop on these greens, which is what you saw yesterday as it firmed up in the afternoon, I, I think you kind of want Billy in that situation. He's he's tough, man. And in, in like a in a weird and nerdy, like not, he's not the type of guy you want on your side in a bar fight because he'll kick the shit out of someone. He's more like the type of guy that'll poke someone's eye out with a fork and just do whatever it takes to hang in there. And that's not to say that Rory and Hovland aren't tough, but this isn't island golf at the Mayakoba where it's pretty stress-free and you're not going to get many bad breaks. Like this was, this was brutal, man. Like listen to the, listen to the player interviews after the round. They were wiped. They were fucking wiped. They were like, holy shit. That was a grind. This course just kicks the living crap out of you. And you kind of just got to keep taking it and not getting too discouraged and again, I know this is probably a hot take, but in those conditions with one round to play, I think I'd rather have Billy. Yes, if we're playing golf in a dome, give me Rory or Hovland, obviously. But if it's the same conditions as we had yesterday, I'm kind of okay with the horse I've got. Other thing on Billy quickly, I cannot believe I'm defending him because I understand he is the worst. Um, but that relief that he got on 18 like that is that is not even remotely controversial. <laughs> Relief from a sprinkler head happens probably 15 times over the course of a tournament. Hovland got the exact same break behind five green on Friday morning. The exact same break. And he had a brutal chip. He was standing on a sprinkler head. The ball got placed right on the green. Easy two putt. Shout out ESPN Plus. So if you want... If you want to take umbrage with the actual rule, that's fine. But don't let the fact that Billy's unlikable uh, cloud you from the fact that every single PGA Tour player on the planet, including Victor Hovland less than 24 hours ago, 
does the exact same thing often many times throughout the course of a tournament. This wasn't like a Patrick Reed situation where uh, certain tour pros would have handled things differently. Uh, Like everyone's doing that. Now, again, like should the rule be changed? Maybe, but that's what every single PGA tour pro is doing in that situation. It's not like there were a couple routes that Reed could have gone down and he probably chose the most sketchy route. Like, no, that's a very black and white situation. Every tour pro is doing the exact same fucking thing in that situation. Um, but anyway, like I said, I kind of like the position I'm in, but that's rarely how it works. I should also say, um, it is very much in play that Fitzpatrick shoots like a 68 tomorrow. Um, or any of the guys at two, I'm just using Fitzpatrick as an example because I have him, um, which would get him to six under. And maybe that's a playoff. Honestly, that is absolutely in play. I think if, if Gooch or Billy shoot even par, um, that might be enough. Um, one of those guys is going to shoot over par would be my guess. And one or two of the guys at two under par will probably get out a little bit earlier like Scheffler did today and post a number. It it could happen. I'm just saying. Um, I'm expecting chaos. That's it. And um, by the way, shout out to Gary Woodland. Um, some of us never gave up on you. I have been told by a very reliable source that he really likes Southern Hills. Just saying. Just saying. Okay, that's enough about API. Um, Let's get to this announcement that I have to talk about. So as many of you know, I left a very solid and secure full-time job as the golf editor for a company called The Score Um, because I, I didn't really find it to be super fulfilling. I wasn't really able to do any of the things that I was good at. Um, I wasn't really able to write uh, more humorously and creatively and talk about the statistics that I want to talk about and, and talk about golf in the way that I wanted to talk about golf and talk about betting and DraftKings and the way that I wanted to talk about those things too. They wanted They wanted to go in a different direction with the podcast. And so I took a risk and left. Um, a very awesome job at a very awesome company. Um, the type of job that when I started out a year ago, I thought was exactly what I wanted. Full-time, good money, reputable company, get paid to watch golf. Like this whole thing at the beginning of starting Twitter and starting a podcast was for the sole reason of getting a job like that, like getting getting hired at, at that type of company to be able to do golf stuff full time. Um, but I kind of told a lot of, uh, the people that have been very successful at this for a lot longer than I have that it just, it didn't feel right. I didn't feel like I was really able to, to cook and, and do the type of work that I'm really passionate about. And overwhelmingly, they were all like, yeah, you should bail. Just bet on yourself. It's a risk worth taking. And so over the past month and a half, I've been talking to a couple places about the podcast and and what 
I think might be my next move. And I've decided, and this will start this week at the players, um, that I'm going to work full-time with Rick Gaiman and continue to help grow Rick Run Good and a bunch of other things too. Um, Something I'm really, really excited about. So what does that actually mean? Um, So this podcast will now be presented by rickrungood.com. So I will reference a bunch of the tools on that site for my research. Um, But the reason I was so pumped to begin this partnership was because Rick completely believes in the vision that I have with this podcast. He doesn't want me to change a thing. I'm going to keep talking about the things that I want to talk about. I'm going to keep having the guests on that I want to have on. And Rick completely supports that and believes in the growth that we have seen with this. So nothing is going to change on that part. This podcast, Sundays and Tuesdays, every week, nothing changing there. But what I'm also going to be doing is producing a lot more content for rickrungood.com. What Rick and I have been talking about is how he wants the site to not just be tools-based, but also have really, really good written content. Um, So every Monday, I'm going to do a very in-depth course breakdown. Um, It's going to be a lot of the stuff from the show, but honestly, even more stuff that I just, I wouldn't be able to fit in an hour and a full, like actual written breakdown of the model inputs, um, and the whole model and all that type of stuff. And I, I know there are a lot of people out there that just still prefer reading stuff. Maybe it's easier if you work at an office, whatever, but I love writing. Um, and so we're going to start doing that every Monday. And then also we were thinking about ideas of what else I could do. I kept, I kept thinking about DraftKings and how I have just became, uh, completely obsessed over the past six months with trying to figure out, um, and become a better DraftKings player. And picking the brains and becoming friends with a couple guys that do that professionally and really trying to learn from them. And the one thing that I really started to notice is the information that I was providing in this show, in my Sunday show, and even in my Tuesday morning show was completely irrelevant for DraftKings, in my opinion. And people asked all the time, like, oh, you talked up... Keith Mitchell and Will Zalatoris in your Sunday show. You didn't play any of those guys. Like, yeah, of course I didn't play any of those guys. Like, you have to factor other things in with DraftKings and just handicapping. Um, it's a completely different game. And I don't even think of conceiving a lineup until Wednesday afternoon. Um, like, you had to stack this week. You got such a big advantage if you went PMA on. Um and there was a decent wave difference in Scottsdale too. Um, but I'm not I'm not ever going to talk about that stuff in my Sunday show. Like the wind changes 15 times between Sunday and Wednesday evening. Um, so I thought there was this lane where I could provide my final DFS thoughts and actually say, okay, weather dependent, ownership dependent, price dependent. Like this is 
the direction I would actually go in. These would be my pivots. These are the guys that I'm actually going to play. This is how you could get away from this chalk. This is how you could build maybe a little bit differently here. Maybe this chalk is good. What chalk is bad? All that stuff. And I just don't have the ability to synthesize that correctly and provide like the best information on that in any of my other content because it's all my other content happens earlier in the week. Um, but I think it's going to be really useful if you play DraftKings. Now, we're going to send out, the way we're going to do it is, we're going to send out a Wednesday newsletter to Rick Run Good subscribers detailing all of that stuff, which I'm really excited about. Um, and I think people are going to get a lot of value out of that. So for access to that content, you will have to subscribe to rickrungood.com, which I would highly recommend that you do because it's very inexpensive. And not only are you getting all of the tools um, that I'm going to be referencing in all of my content, uh, but now you are also going to get exclusive written content too. And the other thing, there's no way to say this without like kind of sounding like a douche. I'm going to try and I think... My listeners know that I'm not that type of guy, but the one thing that I've really prided myself on is I have tried to respond to every single DM and every question I've ever gotten really thoughtfully um, because I don't think a lot of people do that and really give people the time of day. Um and I think that shit just really like matters in life and in general. So, you know, I will admit I'm starting to drown a little bit in that. And I don't say that to be like, oh, I'm this hotshot that gets all these DMs. Like, no, that's not remotely what I'm saying. But I did want to find a way where you could get much better and easier access to me. And that's why we're doing this Rick Run Good Slack channel. So I'm probably not going to be as good at being able to answer DMs um, anymore. And you're going to have a much easier time reaching me with questions in that Slack channel. Um, and I mentioned all of this to say, sign up for Rick Run Good now. Use promo code Andy and you will get not only all the tools, but all of that exclusive written content and complete access to me for any questions in the Slack. Um, and that's why you have to sign up with that promo code. You immediately get put on the list for that DFS newsletter for the course breakdown and invited to the Slack. And if you are already paying for rickrungoods.com, you're good. You're, you're getting all of it too. So I'm incredibly excited to get started with all this. You know, it's funny. When I was just graduating college, this is like a little over two years ago, and I was looking for internships, I emailed Rick and I told him, I bet you he still has the email. I could probably find it too, but I told him, I was like, I'll, I will work for you for free. I really respect what you are doing with the analytics and I will promise I will make it worthwhile. Uh, you won't meet anyone that works harder and you don't have to pay me. If you aren't satisfied, 
it will still be a worthwhile experience for me in any right. And Rick, of course, uh, responded and was like, yeah, we're not really at the point yet where we're adding anyone to the team. Um, but I thought your message was great and let's stay in touch. Um, and he was like, he was like my second follower on Twitter. Um, he followed me when I had like two followers and, and he obviously had 20,000 or 30,000 or whatever. Um, and we obviously stayed in touch for like the next year as I was starting this podcast. And now we've cut, here we are full circle. Um, plus forgot to mention also, so I'm keeping my partnership with odds checker. Um, that's staying the same. I'm still going to do my odds checker every Tuesday and Friday articles. Really important that I got to stick with them because I love working with odds checker. And Rick and I will continue to do the scramble every Tuesday and Friday and continue our quest to bankrupt prize picks. <laughs> so yeah, that's it. Um, that's what I had to say. Um, bet on yourself, right? Like I left the the biggest job that I've ever had took a risk. And now two months later, I'm in a even better position, not just financially, but creatively um, than I was at the score. So that's it. Thanks for listening to the rant. Um, sign up for rickrungood.com. Use that promo code Andy to get all of that exclusive content and the Slack channel. And I think it's down to like 20 bucks now. And you are getting a ton of stuff. So super exciting. And uh, let's talk about the players. Finally. Okay. Players Championship. This has been the flagship event of the PGA Tour. It began in 1974. And currently, for the first time this year, the 2021 Players Championship features the largest purse in golf history. $20 million, which shatters the previous record of last year's U.S. Open at $12 million, $12.5 million. So a lot of money on the line this week. Um, the winner gets $3.6 million this week, um, which I guess is the same thing as finishing like fifth in the pip. Um, massive one and done week. We can talk. Uh, we can talk a little bit about that at the end. Um, I've got a pretty good sense of who I'm using, but this is pretty make or break in one and done. I would say, um, even if you've done absolutely nothing over the first two months of the season, um, if you get this one, right, you're in a pretty good spot. Um, and traditionally this is the strongest field of the year, 154 players. I'm not going to go through all of them. We've got everyone. Um, I'm recording this late on Saturday evening. No idea whether or not Bryson is playing. Uh, he's officially in the field as of now. Uh, if I had to guess, I would guess he doesn't play, but I could be wrong. Um, and other than like Harris English and I guess Phil, um, it's absolutely everyone this week. Pricing is very soft in DFS. Pricing is out at this time. So after we run through the stats, I can kind of talk about my DFS leans um, that are very likely to change, um, because we actually have the pricing, uh, which is great. Okay. Former, former winners, Justin Thomas won last year at 14 under he used 20 to one 2020 was canceled for COVID. 
2019, Roy McIlroy, 16 under, 14 to 1. 2018, Webb Simpson, 18 to 1. He was, or 18 under, he was 100 to 1. 2017, Siwoo Kim at 10 under, he was 500 to 1. 2016, Jason Day, 15 under, he was 12 to 1. 2015, Ricky Fowler, 12 under, he was 66 to 1. 2014, Martin Keimer, 13 under, 90 to 1. 2013, Tiger Woods, 13 under, 9 to 1. 2012, Matt Kuchar, 13 under, 55 to 1. Uh, 2011, KJ Choi, 13 under, 45 to 1. Fun facts about KJ Choi. Um, his son, David, junior golf buddy, um, my man. K- I've met KJ Choi many times. Uh, he does not speak a lick of English. Um, but his son is a great dude and a great golfer that I used to battle with all the time. Um, okay, so first thing that I want to talk about, uh, the way that this course gets set up, it really all just depends on what the PGA Tour wants to do. It doesn't matter if Florida's gotten rain, right? Like the wind a little bit is the only thing that's going to affect it, but there was a redesign in 2017, which we'll get to. Um, and the reason why they did this was to make the course even more controllable. Um, and I'll explain what I mean by that soon. Um, in my opinion, TBC Sawgrass is absolutely awesome when it plays on the firmer and faster side. Um, and it did play pretty firm and fast last year. Um, and I thought the players was great last year. That's exactly how that course should play. So despite the fact that they've screwed it up before, I'm pretty optimistic based on how baked out it was last year, um, that they're going to have it play the way I think it should play. Some of these holes are really fun, uh, when the ball is on the ground. Uh, but if they overwater the course, it could also turn pretty quickly into target golf. So fingers crossed. Um, The other thing that I want to point out, last 10 years, only four out of the 10 times uh, the winner has been below 50 to one. So over 50% of the time, the winner has come over 50 to one. And I think the reason for that is the players is just a really variable tournament. Um, You're going to hear that a ton this week. Water comes into play on, I think, 17 holes. Um, So I wouldn't be afraid to take some shots down the board here. I mean, Siwoo Kim won at 500 to 1. Tim Clark won at 100 to 1. Webb, I know, is great, but he was actually not in good form at all the year that that he won. He was 100 to 1. Neither really was Keimer, who was 90 to 1. So... I know we have all the best players in the world here, but I think there is a lot more variance involved here than there is at a major championship. And I don't know, Abraham Answer or Corey Connors has a far higher likelihood to win the players than they do the U.S. Open or PGA Championship or Masters. Um, we've actually seen a lot of guys come from that 40 to 100 middle range here and win. So don't necessarily feel like you need to go super top heavy this week. Um, I mean, you absolutely can, but there's a lot of variance at this tournament and it is not the type of course where Bryson and Rom and Rory are starting on second base before they tee it up like they are 
at Torrey Pines or, or some other U.S. Open venues. Um, but let's talk about the course. So you all know it, TPC Sawgrass. Um, it was designed in 1979 by Pete Dye with a 2006 redesign and another 2017 redesign by the PGA Tour. 17th hole, overrated. Rest of the golf course, very underrated, in my opinion. Um, it plays as a par 72. It measures 7,189 yards on the scorecard. It's not a very long course. 17 holes have water hazards. Water comes into play on nearly every single hole. Um, the fairways are Bermuda grass overseeded with rye and fine fescue. They measure about 31 yards wide on average, and they get a lot narrower the closer you get to the hole. So in that 330, 340, 350 range, they actually shrink pretty significantly. So this is definitely not a course that you can bomb and gouge to death. I would definitely consider it more of a less than driver course and more of a positional golf course. I understand that Bryson almost won here last year. I also understand that Rory won here. I hope that doesn't throw people on the scent of you need to be a bomber here. Because first of all, Bryson is just really good. When Bryson has his best stuff, he can win anywhere. He almost won at Harbortown too. And he played really conservatively that week. And the reason why he was in the mix really had very little to do with anything he did off the tee. Essentially, he just had an incredible iron week. And same thing with Rory. He just had an unreal iron week. And players like Rory and Tiger, they're actually a lot more conservative off the tee than you would think. Yes, their driver is a weapon when they need it to be, but they also know what to do on these positional golf courses. So these fairways are pretty tight. Uh, water comes into play off the tee a lot, and this is not a long course. So you're going to see a lot of players hit three woods, driving irons, sometimes even three or four irons on a lot of these tee shots. The rough is 2.5 inch Bermuda overseeded with rye and fine fescue. So definitely less thick rough than Bay Hill, um, but it can still get sticky enough where driving accuracy is definitely a priority. The greens are 5,500 square foot on average, so very small greens. Um, Tiff Eagle Bermuda overseeded with Poa Trivialis and Velvet Betgrass. So these are the greens that we see at Innisbrook, uh, Phoenix, and PGA West. They are not true Bermuda. Um, I will not be looking at Bermuda putting. They are very different greens, and these run... 12.5 on the stamp. So I heard a lot of talk last week about how abnormally fast the greens are at Bay Hill. Um, these greens can be just as fast. I mean, it depends what they want to do, but they could even be faster if they wanted to. And, you know, when the PGA Tour redesigned the course in 2017, they made the switch to the overseeded Bermuda. Um, it used to be just Tiff Eagle prior to 2017. And you'll notice if you look closely, it actually looks a little bit more like that shiny bent grass. And it's just way less granular and way more um, consistent here. So I don't think you need to be, I don't think you should be looking at all at like Bermuda specialists. If anything, I would argue that greens like this neutralize bad putters. And looking at the top of the leaderboard, um, especially last year, JT Westwood, 
Corey Connors, Paul Casey, Sergio, um, like not exactly a murderer's row of elite putters, right? And look at the guys who win on these types of greens in Phoenix and Valspar too. It's like, it's a lot of Hideki, a lot of Paul Casey, right? Like, so these greens are so pure. Um, you don't really have to account for all that grain that you would have to do with the Bermuda greens. Um, it's an important distinction that I think is worth mentioning. These are not Bermuda greens, despite the fact that people will probably tell you this week that they are. Um, and I know this is really granular stuff, um, but they made a lot of changes in 2017. So be careful with the course history. And it's just, it's a different golf course. I said this last week with Bay Hill and sure enough, their superintendent, shout out Chris Flynn, did exactly what I thought he was going to do. And it helped me identify players that I thought would be better in those conditions. So let me run through some of the changes here from the 2017 redesign. And my podcast guest this week, the great Steve Bamford, um, did a great job of outlining a lot of these. So shouts to him. And this is, this is the type of stuff that not a lot of people are going to be talking about. So the course actually got 26 yards shorter, which comes mainly from the 12th hole, which was changed from a 358-yard short par 4 into a drivable 302-yard par 4. They made this change basically so the course could have a drivable par 4 that would actually encourage players to go for it. And I think they did an excellent job, honestly. That's a really cool hole. The 7th and 15th holes were also slightly lengthened. They um, they removed spectator mounds between the 6th and the 7th and put in more water, which is really more just for intimidation on the tee shot. But all of the bunkers were rebuilt. The greens got bigger on the 1st, 4th, 8th, 9th, 12th, 13th, and 14th. All those green complexes got modified. Um, I already talked about the agronomy change, which is honestly the biggest of all these changes and the most important. Um, and a lot of this was done. So the PGA tour could completely control the conditions of this course. They have sub air systems now in the greens, like they made this switch to this more consistent and less granular strain of Bermuda. So essentially the PGA tour can really manage this course, however they want to, regardless of the conditions, regardless of how much rain Florida gets. And it's so, it's so, it's such a high tech property. It's like a PGA tour course straight out of an Alex Garland movie. Two people are going to get that reference. Um, but they did this all so they could have the most control over this course, because in the past, when Florida's gotten too much rain, it's, become target golf and not been very good. And now with all these changes, they can make this course play exactly how they want it to play. Um, the sub air, even if it gets rain, the sub air can completely dry out the greens in like an hour. Sub air is really crazy how that works. Different podcast, obviously. Um, but in my opinion, they are looking for a target score between 10 and 18 under. It can't be too hard. They got their Bay Hill in last week. You want to have enough birdies because there's going to be more eyeballs this week. Um, but 10 to 18 under, I think, sounds about right. And I would expect that trend to continue. Other important thing to note about course history uh, that I would be careful with. The other thing, in 2019, 
This also got changed on the schedule and moved from May back into March, which is the main reason that they had to start overseeding it. And they overseeded the entire course, like not just the greens. That is also the reason why there's fescue and rye now in the fairways and rough. So what does this all mean? (laughs) In my opinion, and Rory talked about this as well, this is a much more manageable and variable rough than a true Bermuda rough. Um, There's a little less guesswork involved. It's still incredibly important to hit the fairways, but I do think once you have ryegrass and fescue in the mix, you are able to control your ball just a little bit more out of the rough. Um, and I, and you're going to have, you know, some of those shots around the green are going to be a little bit too out of that rough. And I, I say all this to say, I, I wouldn't spend too much time over analyzing anything really before 2019, different green complexes, different time of year, different conditions, different agronomy, different rough. It will get swept under the rug, but I do think it matters. And I think we can use some of this stuff, like actually looking at these overseeded Bermuda greens and, and stuff like that, and, and really maybe try and help use us, use that to our advantage. Small edges, all about finding small edges. So let's look at some quotes. Rory basically talked about how when the course plays softer, um, which it did the year he won, you can be a lot more aggressive and hit a lot more drivers. He talks about how the rough is a little bit more manageable. You're not going to have to guess as much, like I was just saying. So the course lends itself to a more aggressive style of play. I think the issue with that is that when it plays firmer and faster, like it did last year, um, you can't really be as aggressive. And Rory, who is really, really good at target golf and really, really good on soft golf courses, um, last year when it was a little more bouncy, he missed the cup by like seven. So if I had to guess, it will probably play more like last year than it did the year that Rory won. And that doesn't mean you still shouldn't be aggressive. I just, I don't think that you'll be able to get away with as much when it's playing firmer. Webb Simpson basically talked about how he doesn't feel like TPC Sawgrass gives one particular type of golfer an advantage. Um, I would generally agree with that. He talks about how you don't need to hit driver. Um, and there's an opportunity to hit a lot of different clubs off the tee here. He also talked about how the temptation on Pete Dye courses is to go up pins. But the reason that he won was by aiming at the center of the greens and playing within himself. Interesting. Um, Jason Day talks about hitting a bunch of two irons off the tee. When it gets really hot, the ball goes a mile. So you can hit a lot of irons off the tee and still have short clubs in. Yes, that absolutely checks out. Sergio talks about how this is the type of golf course that is asking you to hit a lot of different shots. Um, It has very small greens, so you are not going to have a lot of lag putts here. And he talks about how it reminds him a lot of Valderrama. And Matthew Fitzpatrick won at Valderrama, and he was also in the mix at the players last year. So, That definitely checks out. And he also talks about how if you hit the green here, you are often going to have a makeable birdie putt. Um, But if you miss the green, you're going to have a pretty challenging chip. So talked about how you've got to shape the ball both ways off the tee and how there is imagination involved. Um, 
I'm actually surprised Spieth hasn't been better here over the years. I actually do really believe that Spieth could play really well here. And he has talked about how much he actually really does like this course. It just hasn't I mean, he, he did finish fourth here before, but since then it hasn't been great, but I'm going to play Spieth. Um, I don't think a lot of people are, uh, but I think he's a good pivot this week and I think he's going to play well. Um, Keimer. Keimer talked about the importance of hitting fairways and how much variance there is on this course. Um, like if you are playing well here, here's what makes us different from like PGA National. Like you can shoot nine under here. Um, but if you're playing poorly, you can also shoot four over. Um, and that's why I would argue that there's even more variance here than there is at like PGA national, because you can actually really go low here if you're playing well. Last one, Phil talked about how it's really tough around the greens here and how that puts a premium on iron play. I would say that's accurate. He talked about how, if you are missing greens on this course, you are pretty much cooked. So the big themes that I got from how players talked about this course is you have to be a little creative here. You're going to hit some different shots, especially if you're missing the greens. Um, you can probably win here without hitting driver once. Maybe short game matters a little bit more, according to the players, um, than you'll probably hear this week. And it's a very deceptive course where you really have to think your way around it. And if you are playing well, a little unlike Honda, I think you can go really low here. And if you are playing poorly, you can also shoot 76, 77 really easily. And there's a pretty high likelihood that one of the elites is probably going to do that. Okay, let's get to the stats. Um, off the tee, 15.7% of strokes gained here have come off the tee. That is right around tour average. TBC Sawgrass, does rank inside the top 10 on tour in penalty for missing the fairway. So essentially that means what's the average score for a player when they hit the fairway versus when they don't hit the fairway. At TPC Sawgrass, it is proven to be pretty damn important to play from the fairway. Now, you can work around that and win here without hitting a ton of fairways. Rory was 49th in driving accuracy. Day was 51st. Fowler was 43rd. Keimer was 39th. Um, but all those players ranked either top five in either greens and regulation or scrambling. Um, Rory was third in greens and regulation. Day was first in scrambling. Uh, Fowler was second in putting. Keimer was fourth in scrambling. So I basically wanted to identify players that are good drivers of the ball on shorter courses where you don't necessarily need to hit driver because I think hitting the fairway here is important. But since we've gone to the ryegrass grass rough blend in 2017, I do think it's a little easier to score from the rough. And I've done a much deeper breakdown of trying to figure out who are the best players off the tee on some of these shorter golf courses that can be found in my Monday uh, written preview on rickrungood.com. Um, approach. So 38.5% of strokes gained have come on approach. That is comfortably above tour average. You are going to hear a million times this week about how TBC Sawgrass is all about iron play. And 
I can't really argue too much with that, um, but let me try and explain why that is. So despite the fact that you aren't hitting a ton of long irons here, this is um, one of the hardest courses per shot to gain on approach with. And that's largely because these greens are very small. The only courses that are harder, actually, PGA National, Bay Hill, Kiowa Island, um, that's it. Only those three last year. Another thing I noticed, Sawgrass is one of the hardest iron courses under 150 yards. So the wedge shots are very difficult here. The only courses to have harder shots from inside 150 yards, there was just one, Kiowa Island, another Pete Dye course. Um, so wedges are really, really important here. Um, I looked a lot at... 75 to 150, um, a lot, a lot higher than tour average in terms of the amount of shots that you're hitting there, kind of lower in that 150 to 200 range and right about average 200 yard plus, you're still going to have to hit some, some long irons here because these par fives, you can usually reach with a long iron. Um, and you do have a couple long par fours, but I actually think it's really more important to hone in on wedge players here. Um, you know, we talk about every week, is this a wedge course? Is this a mid-iron course? Is this a long-iron course? And TPC Sawgrass, it's like a little bit of both. It's like a wedges and kind of a long-iron course. Um, I, I'm smaller on proximity stuff this week. I, I just really want to try and identify the best wedge players. Um but I also do think short iron proximity can get a little wonky. So I basically tried to use my own formula to try and figure out who were the best wedge players. And again, I want to get to early leans. I deep dive that in the Monday article on rickrungood.com. So I really break down like, okay, these are the guys that are actually have proven to be the best wedge players in the world. You can find that live Monday morning on rickrungood.com. Putting. Okay. So 31.4% of strokes gained have come here putting. That's comfortably below tour average. And I've alluded to this already a little bit. I would argue that this is a course that neutralizes putting a bit. Uh, I don't think that you need to be a good lag putter at all. And these greens are just really true. Like Justin Thomas won here without putting well. Sergio lost strokes putting Westwood, Casey, Corey Connors, Lowry, like Rory won here, not having that great of a putting week. The year Webb Simpson won, Xander finished second, losing over a stroke putting. Siwoo Kim won without putting that well. Um, So I'm going lower on putting this week. I just, I think this overseeded version of Bermuda tends to neutralize putting and it's not a putting contest type weep. It's a iron and driving accuracy type week, in my opinion. Now, I mentioned that these have the same greens as Innisbrook, PGA West, and TBC Scottsdale with that overseeded Bermuda. Um, and because I'm a psycho, I looked at who are the best players on this per- specific overseeded Bermuda. Again, I will do a much deeper dive on this on the Monday article where I'll really break down like, okay, who, who really thrives on this specific overseeded surface of Bermuda. Um, but just a couple guys that popped out that were better than their baseline. Sam Burns, 
really good on these types of greens. He's won in Innisbrook. Putts great at Scottsdale, great at PGA West. Number two, JT Poston, who's also been good here. Really, really good on these greens. And then we have Brendan Todd, Patrick Reed, Brant Snedeker, Bo Hostler, Louis Ustazen, Brooks Kepka, John Rahm, Brian Gay. So of the elite players, Burns, Rahm, Louis, and Kepka have been really good on these overseeded greens. Couple sleepers, JT Poston, Brendan Todd, Bo Hossor. I guess you could call Patrick Reed a sleeper at this point, but those are the guys. Um, and then a couple guys that putt abnormally bad on these types of greens. Harold Varner, terrible on these greens. Tony Finau, pretty terrible on these greens. Mark Leishman, really struggles on these greens. Sebastian Munoz has been terrible on these greens. Um, Kevin Streelman's pretty bad. Glover's pretty bad. Keegan, I mean, now you're just getting into guys who are you know, terrible putters everywhere. But keep your eye out for Post and Todd and Hossler. Those guys over a large sample size have really seemed to love this style of grass. Um, I know it sounds crazy, but just listen to what players say. They care about this stuff. Um, all right, short game. Around the green, um, right around average, tour average in, in terms of like how players have done around the green here, um, how many, how the percentage of strokes that they've gained. Um, I do think what Phil said is correct. Uh, this course is, I think it's difficult around the greens and I was looking at chipping from the mode areas. It is harder to get up and down. Um, then it's been the six hardest to gain strokes around the green, from the fairway here, the ninth hardest to gain strokes around the green from the rough here, and the sixth hardest to gain strokes around the green from the bunkers. So I do think you do have to have a nice short game around here. The issue is if you're missing greens, you just likely aren't in contention to begin with, but it's a pretty tough course to get up and down for. So I probably think short game might be a little bit more important than some others this week. Um, I do think scrambling is a really useful stat on any Florida course because you are just inevitably going to hit it in the water here sometimes. So I want to identify guys that can grind and make pars if they get derailed because you're going to get derailed on this course. And Siwoo Kim, first in scrambling when he won. Jason Day, first in scrambling when he won. Keimer, fourth in scrambling when he won. Tiger, sixth in scrambling. KJ Choi, seventh. Tim Clark, second. Um, so like on all Florida golf courses, I think that's a really important stat this week. So I went with 14% around the green scrambling and sand saves. Scoring stats. So the one thing that stood out to me, only courses last year with more penalty strokes were PGA West Stadium Course, PGA National Concession, and Sawgrass. So you're going to hit it in the water here. Uh, probably a bunch. And again, that's why scrambling becomes so important here. And also one of the reasons why I'm looking at bogey avoidance as well as birdies are better gained this week, because the cool thing about this course is that there's a lot of chances to make birdie. Uh, but there's also like every single hole has over an 8% birdie rate and one third of the holes have over a 20% birdie rate. So there are a lot of birdie opportunities, but every single hole also has an 8% bogey rate and nearly half the holes have over an 18% bogey rate. So 
this is kind of the rare course where there's so much variance. And just in general, you are going to see a lot less pars on this course. DraftKings scoring usually gets pretty crazy. So you kind of want to find that balance between guys uh, that you know can fill it up and also guys that can avoid big numbers. Par five scoring, absolutely. Always something to look at when you get onto a par 72. The top 10 finishers here have really eaten on these par fives. You really have to score on these holes. I wouldn't say there's as much of a stark contrast as we saw at Bay Hill last week, but I still think that par fives are the par fives are really important at TBC Sawgrass as well. And then quickly, comp courses and course history. Um, I'm not a huge fan of course history here. I think this is a weird course, and I do think there are certainly some players that never play well here, but there's also no one that really like always plays well here. That's just how that's just how this course works. Like Xander finished second in his first appearance here, and then he miscut his his next two times. Molinari has played here eight times. He's got four miscuts and four top tens. Rory has four top tens and four missed cuts. Sergio, Adam Scott, Justin Thomas, Hideki. Like those guys have probably been the most consistent here over time. Uh, but this is not the type of course that you can just expect players to show up uh, here regardless of form and play well. Like that's just, that's not how this works. Um, so, you know, I, I think it is a very visually tricky and nuanced course. You don't see a ton of guys um, outside of Xander that year really contend on their first appearance, at least recently. Um, but you can win here without playing well here before, if that makes sense. So I want you to have some experience. Like I don't necessarily want you to be a debutante, but it doesn't necessarily have to be good experience, if that makes sense. Like Keimer, zero top tens before he won here. Tim Clark never finished better than 30th before he won here. KJ Choi, no prior top tens. Kucher, no prior top tens. Um, Siwoo, no prior top tens. So that's kind of how I have course history this week. Probably a little, little smaller than normal. I, I, I want you to have played here before. Um, but I don't really care that as much how you have played here. I'm not interested in uh, like that Pete Dye filter thing. Um, Whistling in Kiowa Island, like those are giant ballparks where distance and long irons are super important. I'd rather just specifically isolate the actual courses that make sense, in my opinion. So there were a couple. TPC Twin Cities. I actually really like TPC Twin Cities. I found a lot there. Uh, it's it's a different grass and and TPC Twin Cities you're going to hit more drivers on but the importance of keeping the ball in play off the tee and avoiding hazards is so important there uh, they're a lot more similar than I would have originally thought TPC River Highlands Pete Dye obviously where you have to keep the ball in play off the tee you have to be really dialed in with your wedges um, again I know it's a different grass but. As far as Pete Dye's other designs, I actually think that TBC River Highlands and the stadium course at PJ West probably have the most in common with TBC Sawgrass. Um, TBC Scottsdale, I think uh, a lot of the same vibe, right? Where you have to keep the ball in play off the tee. Uh, 
you can be aggressive, but there is a lot of trouble. That course plays a little firmer and faster. Uh, and obviously you've got the same overseeded greens. I think there's a lot in common there. Innisbrook. I really like Innisbrook because it has the same type of greens. It's narrow off the tee, very positional. It's a little bit harder. Um, that's probably my favorite that I think has the most in common with Sawgrass. Um, Harbor Town, Pete Dye, narrow off the tee. You have to be super dialed in with those wedges. Um, obviously, you've got a ton of crossover on those leaderboards. Um, I like that one fine too. Harbor Town really just kind of revs up the positional aspect of it. Uh, and then PGA West, which was obviously designed to be designed by Pete Dye to be the West Coast version of TPC Sawgrass. And it has those exact same greens. So this one probably makes the most sense on paper. And you've got guys like Siwoo and Answer and many others that have been great at both. Um, I ended up rolling with PGA West, Innisbrook, and Harbortown because you've got the short positional Pete Dye, two out of those three. You've got the same greens, two out of those three. So those were the ones that I actually went uh, with the model, but I think you can definitely reference TBC Scottsdale, TBC Twin Cities and TBC River Highlands. I think there's definitely some commonalities at those places as well. Okay. <sighs> We're not going to get it in an hour because there's like one or two players that I want to talk about, but we did our best. Um, so this is probably the most complex model that I've ever created. Um, <laughs> Uh, I also just spent a ton of time really diving into the ins and outs of rickrungood.com. And I actually think that I've been able to identify some really good options here. Um, you are going to hear a lot this week. Oh, the players is impossible to handicap. Nothing matters. No one knows anything. It's completely random. Like, yeah, I get it. There's a lot of variance, but I also do think you can still get an edge by looking at the right things. I love my guy Nagels. He's like family to me. And we always argue about the no one knows anything thing. And my pushback is always like, okay, but then why do the same people win every single time? Like, why do I have friends, listeners of this show that have been able to quit their jobs to play DraftKings golf professionally? Like this is, this has really worked for me over a three year sample size. I keep track of every bet, every dollar I've ever deposited into DraftKings. And I'm not at the stage where I want that to be my professional job, but like, yeah, I think like, I think that's a little, I think that's kind of bullshit. I think you can win money long-term in golf if you do it the right way. And I think many of the people that listen to this, I think the people that listen to this Sunday podcast particularly are really fucking smart um, and really care about winning money at this. Why else the fuck would you listen to me talk about grass? Um, so yeah, is the players one of the harder events? For sure. Um, could all of these guys miss the cut? Yes, it's golf. Um, but this is, this is what I went with. So I'm not going to give the entire... Uh, input statistical breakdown that is going to be all in that Monday article. But I combined all of those things that I talked about, all the scoring stats, all the putting on those different courses, recent putting, 
Short game, around the green, scrambling, sand saves, wedge play, greens and regulation gain, like all the comp courses, all that stuff, like over like 22 things. And after all that, the number one player was John Rahm, which actually makes me happy because if it was like Kramer Hickok, I would know that I've just gone way too overboard, but it actually really makes sense. Like Rom number one, Cantlay number two, JT number three, Berger number four, Louie number five, Colin number six, Webb Simpson number seven, Sungjae number eight, Scotty Scheffler number nine, Sam Burns number 10, Cameron Smith, Paul Casey, Russell Henley, Mito Pereira, Xander Shoffley, Adam Scott, Rory McIlroy, Will Zalatoris, Shane Lowry, Taylor Gooch. That's your top 20. Okay. So we're at, we're at an hour, but I want to do two things pretty quickly. Since we have DFS pricing, I want to run through some of my predictions about where people are going to go in DraftKings and where I'm going to go. And I want to give you two guys that I'm absolutely betting. Um, One that I already have bet and one that I think is going to be your player's champion. Um, And then we'll get out of here. So we'll probably probably get like 115. But the player that I've already bet that I think is going to win the players this year, um, I think Brooks Koepka is going to win the players. Um, I bet him this morning at 41 to one, maybe he gets to 50. I don't know. Um, I'm fine with, uh, I'm fine with the 41. Um, I thought that was a great number on him. He's not going to rate out great in anything I do with, with the model. So I'm not really going to talk too much of that because he hasn't been playing good enough and consistently enough to rate out as some of these other players. Um, but one thing I will say about Brooks is that I noticed he has been great on this overseeded Bermuda. He puts unbelievably well at TPC Scottsdale every single year. Um, and he has been good at the players and putted well at the players. Like in his last two appearances, he's finished 16th and 11th. And I know we don't think of Brooks on these shorter positional golf courses because it's like, Oh, you know, his driver is such a weapon, but he's great in Memphis. He's great in Phoenix. Like those courses aren't really that far off from what TBC Sawgrass is asking you to do. Um, And I don't think a lot of people are going to play him this week. I think people are kind of fed up. Like, so he's coming off a 16th at the Honda where he gained two strokes off the tee, 3.3 on approach, 0.3 around the green and lost 0.4 putting. Um, and he, that was good. Like that he came back from a very poor ball striking week at Riviera. Um, he gained over two off the tee and on approach and he's only one start removed from a third in Phoenix where he hit the ball. Great too. I think we can throw Riviera out the window because he hates that golf course. Uh, he hates Kikuyu. He doesn't like POA. Um, he's been on the record about that, but now he's back in Florida. And he got that nice tune-up at the Honda. Um, 
he was really good. That's a really easy course to look foolish on. And he stood up and played well and didn't really blow up at all. Um, and if he'd putted just a little bit better, he would have been right in the mix. And I get it. Like, I think people don't think Brooks at the players. And you think Brooks at U.S. Opens and PGA Championships. Um, and I completely understand that. But I think he is going to go under-owned at a big golf tournament. And I think everyone wants to play the motivation game with Brooks. Um, and I just, this is the biggest purse in PGA Tour history. Like, if Brooks cannot get up for this, he's probably find a different day job, right? Like, I, I, I think we make a joke of this tournament, like, oh, the fifth major of the year. Um, you know, it kind of gets like, people kind of shit on the players a little bit. You know what I'm talking about. I I don't know if the actual golfers feel that way. <laughs> like, I, I think the players really care about this tournament. It is a fuck ton of money. Um, and Brooks likes money. And he's really due. And I don't really, and I'll, t- I'll use this to kind of segue to like talking about the other elites. I don't really know. I don't really think this is like a perfect spot for Cantlay or, you know, and I know Rory's one here or Hovland or, and there's something I want to talk about with Morikawa too, because I think Morikawa this week is going to be uber chalk. It's already started. Um, like all those guys could suck here. All those guys, Rom, Cantlay, Rory, Bryson, if he could play, like all those guys could suck, could suck here. So why not just play Brooks at double the number? who I think will be backburnered a little bit um, because he's not going to be good in models and he's been really hard to trust lately. So I'm playing Brooks. I really like Brooks. I think Brooks is going to win the players. So DFS, right? Brooks for me, 8,600. I'm in. Where am I going at the top? I'm probably going to keep playing John Rom, <laughs> but I do have to say, I think the chalkiest guys at the top are going to be Morikawa and Cantlay. Um, and it depends It depends what Rory and Hovland do tomorrow. I think if one of them plays really well but doesn't win, they will be uber chalk as well. I think if one of them does win, they will be under-owned. Um, but I still, I want to, before I make a final call on those guys, I want to see what happens on Sunday at the API. So I want to talk about calling for a second. So I, when I was gearing up, when I first started my research, I was like, okay, this is the perfect, the perfect course for calling Morikawa. And I still do believe that. But the one thing, that I want to throw caution to the wind with Morikawa. And again, this could be nothing. I, you just, with these really elite players, you have to take a stand. You can't play them all. I mean, you can play them all, but I don't think that's a good strategy. And you have to try and find, okay, what's something I could pull that maybe 
here's a reason to get off him. And I think the ownership will probably enough of a reason to get off Morikawa. But here's why I kind of said, I'm going to pump the brakes on betting Morikawa this week. So I dug into this a little bit. Morikawa gained 6.8 strokes putting last week at the Genesis. And looking back over the course of his career, I went back and checked. So when Morikawa is coming off a spike putting performance, he has been really terrible. So he gained 5.4 at the Memorial, came back the next week, lost one the next week. Gained four at the concession, came back the next week, lost 2.1 the next week. Gained 3.2 at the Sony, came back the next week, lost 7.6 at the Genesis. Gained 8.1 at the PGA, came back the next week, lost one at the Northern Trust. Gained 4.7 at the Workday, came back the next week, lost 8.3 at the Memorial. Gained 3.4 at the Charles Schwab, came back the next week, lost 2.5 the next week at the Heritage. So he has literally, in the last two and a half years, never followed up a putting performance where he has gained over three and a half strokes putting with a positive putting performance. He always loses the next week. For whatever reason, he always follows up spike putting performances with a bad putting performance. And I think the sample size is a little... It's a little too large for us just to call that a coincidence. With that being said, I think the counter argument could be, well, JT won here gaining about one and a half strokes putting. Can Morikawa gain one and a half strokes putting and win? Of course he can. He he may be able to win this tournament gaining 0.5 strokes putting, right? But I'm just saying if Morikawa is going to be very highly owned at the top, I, I'll i pivot. I mean, I'd rather stick with Rom. And listen, I think JT, like I, I, I'm going to play JT instead of Morikawa. I think people people think like JT could, JT isn't going to win the players back-to-back. I, like has anyone won the players back-to-back? Like, I don't know, man. I could see that. JT rates out immaculately here. Um, and... JT's been really good. Um, he just hasn't been winning. And I guess that's the scale you have to grade him on, but he was really good at Riviera. The putter came around. The entire game is really starting to come around. This is the first time that he gained strokes in all four major categories since he won the players last year. The off the tee got better. The irons did get a little bit worse from a peak performance. Um, but the short game got better. And most importantly, this was his best putting performance of the season. Um, so I don't know. I, I think if, you know, if there's, if there, if we're playing the ownership game between Morikawa and JT, and even if it's something like Morikawa's 22 and JT's 14, like I'm taking JT every single day. Um, he's very due for a win. Um, I, guess I'm slightly worried about he has a somewhat similar thing um, to Morikawa with the putting, but he's been better than Morikawa um, at that. So I, I think JT and Rom are probably the guys that I like over um, over nine, I guess. Really? Like I like I like Spieth. Um 
I think Cam Smith is going to be pretty chalky. Um, I will play Xander sub 15. Um, I know he doesn't love Florida, so we'll have to see on that one. I'm, I'm very curious. I don't have a good gauge on, on where the wind will blow with Xander this week. Um, but I think from the early signs, the people that I've talked to, I think it's going to be a lot of Morikawa and Cantlay at the top. And you can play both of those guys and fit them in a lineup fine because the pricing is so soft farther down the board. Gooch will be mega chalk, um, especially if he doesn't win. Um, Casey pissed a lot of people off today. I still think he will be mega chalk. Mito at 6.7, mega chalk. Mito will be mega chalk. I've already started to hear it. Trust me. If people play Mito at 8.9, if Mito is 8.9 chalk, he will be mega chalk at 6.7. And he hit the ball really, really well at the Honda too. And in my model, he rates out as the best value under 7.5 by far, by far, or under seven, um, by far. So Mito, 6.7, 12, 13, 14%. I could see it. Um, the guy that I am going to bet, I'm waiting a little bit. Um, but the other guy that I love this week is Alex Noren. Um, I think Alex Noren could win this tournament. Uh, he, I was on him at Honda. Uh, he almost got it done for me there. Um, but I think this is a really good spot for him. The irons have been getting a little bit better. Um, great short game, really good out of the bunkers. I think you want him more if the conditions get a little firmer and faster because he he's really good. Like he doesn't make a lot of big numbers and he just kind of stays in it. Um, like he, if, if the Honda classic was like, 80, 90 holes instead of 72 holes, like Norin might've won because he just, he kept making like eight pars, one birdie. And he just like, he, he, he's really good at keeping the ball in play. And I like him a lot on shorter, tougher golf courses. He's had some great success putting on these overseeded Bermuda greens, always puts great at Innisbrook, always puts great at TBC Scottsdale. He's been really good at the Valspar, really good at the heritage in a limited sample size. Um, Want to talk about water everywhere? Third at the 3M Open, third at the Honda, fifth at the Honda, sixth at the Phoenix Open on these overseeded Bermuda greens. And at the Honda, where he finished fifth, 1.5 off the tee, 5.4 on approach. Um, and he was fine putting, but he didn't even really spike putting. So I do think Noren could win the players, um, and I will bet him to do so. Uh, I'm just... I'm waiting on what the number is. I'm going to find the best number on him. I already have Brooks locked and it's going to be Norn for me. Um, so, you know, this was his best ball striking week, Alex Norn, since the 2019 open championship. Um, and he, he just finished six in Phoenix too. I said this with Billy. It's like, I know these guys that you think of as not great ball strikers and great putters well, what happens if they actually start hitting the ball well, right? It's I'll bank on that, right? It's only could be a matter of time before they have that spike putting performance. And Norin hit the shit out of it at the Honda, and he putted just okay. So I do think there's a chance 
like Billy, that the ball striking continues and the putter gets hot. So I like Alex Noren a lot. Don't have a firm stance on anyone else because I want uh, the API to wrap up and there are too many, too many of the guys that still have to play on Sunday. But Brooks, Noren will absolutely be bets. Um, and check back in later in the week. Uh, Tuesday show, Steve Bamford. Um, one of my all-time favorites. Last time we had him on for the Ryder Cup, he is the GOAT at this. I mean, he is, I joke about this, but he's the main reason why this podcast exists. Um, so I am super excited to talk to Steve Bamford. Always like so excited to the point where we are recording at 6 a.m. Pacific time. So I'm waking up at like 5.30 a.m. to record with him to make it work in England. And I will jump out of bed. I will be spry. Um, so that that's going to be a really good show. It'll probably come out a little bit later on Tuesday. Like those Monday episodes have been dropping late on Monday nights. And I've been tweeting them on Tuesday mornings. This one might be, since we're recording super early Tuesday morning, this one might be like a Tuesday at noon or Tuesday early afternoon type deal, but it's Bamford, so it's worth it. Um, scramble with Rick Tuesday and Friday. We The prize picks thing is getting out of control. Um, I, more on that later. We're, we're running short on time, but seriously, prize picks, Use promo code REC for that one. Um, we have been absolutely eating on those markets, and we will do a full deep dive on that uh, on the Tuesday and, and Friday scramble, as we do every week and give out our picks for that. Odds checker articles, Tuesdays and Fridays. Um, and I think that's it. Um, thanks to everyone for uh, for sticking around. I know this one was on the longer side. I had to start out with a couple announcements and such, but I'm super excited for next week. It's a big week for me. As you guys know, um, please sign up. It's really cheap for Rick run good at, you know, join that community. Um, it, it's really awesome. And I'm really proud to be a part of it. And, uh, I hope everyone has a great rest of the weekend. Um, good luck with your bets on Sunday and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.